This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's the one play whose name I probably shouldn't say out loud. It's time for Macbeth. When shall we see meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? Stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. Come, you spirits, that tend on mortal thoughts. But I heard a voice cry, sleep no more, that Beth does murder sleep. False face must hide what the false heart doth know. I bear a charmed life which must not yield to one of woman born. Dispel thy charm, and let the angel whom thou still hast served tell thee, Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? Alright, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Roger that. T-minus one minute and counting. All is rotten in the state of Scotland. Scottish thanes have risen up against King Duncan. Fortunately, he has some tough, loyal soldiers on his side, including the Thane of Gloms, otherwise known as Macbeth. When three witches prophesy that Macbeth will be promoted and eventually become king, they plant a seed in Macbeth's head that eventually leads to Macbeth with the help of his wife murdering Duncan in his bed. After blaming the murder on Duncan's sons, Macbeth, who is Duncan's cousin, becomes king. He's immediately aware of everyone who might get in his way, including his best friend Banquo and their comrade-in-arms, Macduff. In short order, Banquo is killed and Macduff's family is murdered after Macduff escapes Scotland. Macbeth, racked with guilt starts seeing ghosts, while Lady Macbeth, equally shamed, commits suicide. The witches tell Macbeth that no man born of woman can kill him, giving him an overinflated ego so that he's perfectly happy when war breaks out, but less happy when Macduff confronts him and admits he was untimely ripped from his mother's womb. In other words, Macduff was born by Caesarian, and Macbeth's head is destined for the end of a pike. How to start a discussion about a play that shouldn't be named, other than by explaining why it shouldn't be named. Growing up in the theater, you learn pretty quickly that it's bad luck to say the name of a Scottish play while in a theater a superstition even agnostics take seriously, and for good reason. A long line of disasters have been dogging this play ever since it was first banned by James I in 1599. In the years since, those associated with the tragedy have been maimed, strangled, burnt, killed, and or crucified by the critics. In 1849, rival productions of the play led to a riot that killed 22 people. Laurence Olivier nearly died, playing the title role in 1937, while another production with John Gilgood saw three actors die during the run and the suicide of the costume designer. Several Lady Macbeths have walked off the stage during the sleepwalking scene. The most famous victim, of course, was Abraham Lincoln, who was said to have quoted the play less than a week before being shot by John Wilkes Booth an actor who gained fame playing the title character years before. None of this has affected the success of the play, which remains one of Shakespeare's most famed, most popular, and most often performed. It's not hard to guess why. There's witches, ghosts, murder, a prophecy, famous speeches, and lots and lots of blood. The simple plot allows for the play to be endlessly reinterpreted, permitting productions to take the play out of medieval Scotland and dump it anywhere they like. Orson Welles famously set a 1936 production in Haiti, while others have set the play in Bermuda and 16th century Japan. With tremendous ease, the play becomes an allegory for the rise of dictators, making it especially relevant to the political climate of the 20th and 21st centuries. Marry all this with the fact that the play has a stellar lead role for a male actor, and you have all the ingredients necessary for a piece of theater that will probably be around forever. 
As is so often the case with Shakespeare, the play really owes its popularity to those actor-managers of the 18th and 19th centuries. That riot in 1849 occurred because two warring actor-managers had brought their interpretations to New York at the same time. Now, none of the laurels heaped on the play are undeserved. There is some dispute over whether the text we have is the one Shakespeare actually wrote, but if we have been given an edit, then the world of theater is all the better for it. As a play, this one is as solid as they come. It is lean, taut, and impressively short. The play is, in my mind, Shakespeare's last truly great work and his final uncontested masterpiece. It is grand and bloody and built on the work Shakespeare did with Othello and Richard III. Now, in both those plays, our main character is a villain who brings us into his world. Iago wants to destroy Othello, and Richard wants the crown, and neither man ever doubts the action he must take to get his heart's desire. Macbeth is an entirely different sort of villain. Iago, Richard, and Macbeth all begin the play as villains, but in Macbeth, we watch the villain transform. Richard III and Iago never regret their behavior, but by the end of the play, Macbeth is all too aware of what his behavior has cost. I'll warn you now, my interpretation goes somewhat against convention, which generally portrays Macbeth as the classic tragic hero. Described as the bride of Belladonna, the husband of war, he is often portrayed as the great man who falls from grace under the weight of his own ambitions. Now, this may make him more palatable for actors, but it is not necessarily supported by the text. Consider Macbeth's reaction when he learns that he's to be made Thane of Condor, thus confirming the first two parts of the Weird Sisters' two prophecy. Two truths are told, as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. I thank you, gentlemen. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill... Why hath it given me earnest of success, commencing in a truth? I am Thane of Cordor. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. Macbeth is already thinking about how he might become king, and he's already thinking of the fact that violence might be the only way this will occur. But why? The Weird Sisters never said that he would murder the king. In fact, their prophecy wasn't very detailed at all. Hail to thee, Thane of Glass. Oh, hail Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Cordor. Oh, hail Macbeth, that shalt be king hereafter. <laughs> now, given the politics of Scotland at the time, it's likely that Macbeth knows that the road to the throne isn't an easy one. Macbeth, who is the king's cousin, knows that for him to wear the crown, both King Duncan and his heirs would have to be either dead or in exile. But does this necessarily mean that Macbeth should be the one to kill them or cause their exile? See, a more reasonable person might assume that some contrivance of fate, war, plague, etc., would lead to the dissolution of the House of Duncan and assure the rise of the House of Macbeth. To his credit, Macbeth does slip into this passive, more fatalistic my approach. have me, king, my chance may crown me without my stir. Yet, this decision was not his first instinct. 
His first instinct was to commit murder, a thought which, you'll recall, unfixes his hair and makes his seated heart knock at his ribs. Macbeth is not a perfect innocent who is corrupted by outside forces. His first thought leans towards taking charge of his fate any way he can. It's his second thought that causes him to proceed with caution. His wife certainly knows this is his nature. She tells us that Macbeth is too full of the milk of human kindness, but this hardly interferes with his prowess on the battlefield. Then there's the very next scene, when Macbeth learns that Malcolm has been named Prince of Cumberland. Macbeth immediately sets him up as a rival for the throne. The Prince of Cumberland. That is a step on which I must fall down, or else or leap, for in my way it lies. Stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. The eye wink at the hand, yet let that be which the eye fears when it is done to see. Recall that only a scene ago, Macbeth was suggesting that he might wait for chance to crown him without a stir. Yet here he's talking of his black and deep desires, and by the next scene, the idea of murder has become a fait accompli. Duncan comes here tonight. And when those hands... Tomorrow, as he purposes. Oh, never shall sun that morrow see. <laughs> Your face, my thane, is as a book where men may read strange matters. To beguile the time, look like the time, bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue, look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall to all our nights and days to come give solely sovereign sway and masterdom. We will speak further. Only look up clear. To alter favor ever is to fear. Leave all the rest to me. See, Macbeth wrestles on and off with the morality of Regicide, but the off part never lasts very long. Macbeth will vacillate between doubt and resolve throughout the play, but he always chooses resolve because that is the world in which he lives. Consider his brutality on the battlefield, where he is celebrated for unseeming the merciless Macdonwald from knave to chaps. The response to his violent behavior is to give him a promotion. All hail the Thane of Cawdor. We know that his is a rough and brutal world, ruled by violence and toxic masculinity. I suspect Macbeth does not truly have a stomach for it, which is why he argues with himself over whether to kill the king. He's a thug, but he's a thug cursed with a soul, which is why his wife has to work so hard to check that soul whenever the milk of human kindness starts to bleed. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since? And wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? From this time such I account thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemst the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would? Like the poor cat of the adage. Prithee, peace. I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. What beast was then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. 
Nor time nor place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck, and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I so sworn as you have done to this. It's worth pausing to note the second half of this little speech. Several productions in recent memory, including the 2015 film with Michael Fassbender, have capitalized on this point in an effort to make the Macbeths a little more sympathetic. They are the grieving parents of a dead child. Knowing that they had a dead child is a really nice detail, but it's worth remembering why Shakespeare included it in the first place. Macbeth no longer wants to commit regicide, and Lady Macbeth is hoping to change his mind. She attacks his masculinity and implies that a real man would keep his promise to her, just as she would keep her promise to him if she had sworn to kill their child. Whatever sympathy points they get for being the parents of a dead child are quickly negated by the fact that Lady Macbeth calls upon the ghost of that child to convince her husband to murder the king. I'll return to Lady Macbeth in a moment, but for now, let's just say that she guilts Macbeth with the ghost of their dead child, and that the tactic works. Macbeth, a man who lives in a world governed by honor and ego, is resolved again. It's worth noting how quickly all this has occurred. Macbeth gets off the battlefield with Banquo, meets the witches, hears the prophecy, and realizes moments later that their predictions might be true. He goes home, where his wife suggests murder, and he agrees to discuss it later. The king arrives, and Macbeth, despite his doubts, screws his courage to the sticking place, and all of this is just the first act. The speed with which Macbeth decides to kill Duncan is significant. Faced with tough choices, Macbeth always leaps towards violence. In Act 3, when he begins to fear Banquo suspects what he's done, Macbeth's instant response is to hire a couple of murderers. A smarter man might have worked to either corrupt Banquo or discredit him, perhaps even frame him for being part of the plot to kill the king. This is what Richard III or Iago might have done, but Macbeth instantly leaps towards the sword. Of course, he expresses regret right after, and here is where we have more of that fascinating paradox that is our Macbeth. He is a man in a murderous world who discovers too late that he does not have the heart of a murderer. He forces himself to kill because he believes it's what must be done, only to be pained by the act once he's committed it. The irony is that none of the murders are actually necessary. As it has been said, he could have waited for fate to remove Duncan from power. He could have also worked to neuter Banquo without resorting to the assassin's knife. I've seen productions of Macbeth that set the play in a godfather-esque world of mobsters and criminals, and this seems a suiting analogy for the world of the play. Macbeth is a crook, but he thinks too much, and is troubled by the morality of his own behavior. It is this which separates him from Iago and Richard III. They are crooks of the unrepentant kind. Indeed, they almost take joy in the chaos they cause. Macbeth finds no such glee. He wants to be Richard III and Iago, but in the end, he just doesn't have the heart. Shakespeare drives Macbeth towards his murderous act, which is one of the things that gives this play its dramatic intensity. In a romantic comedy, they look and sigh and immediately fall in love. In Macbeth, they look and sigh and immediately plot murder instead. Scotland is a brutal world, and its inhabitants lean towards brutal thoughts. Both he and Lady Macbeth strike me as a sort of couple who have made Machiavellian behavior a hallmark of their marriage. They are, in other words, a pair of small-time crooks who have probably already committed so many other minor crimes that the decision to commit murder isn't so much a leap as it is a step to the right. 
Just as The Comedy of Errors is Shakespeare's best structured comedy, Macbeth is the best structured tragedy. I've already mentioned the great economy of Act 1, and the rest of the play is no different. Duncan is killed at the start of Act 2, Macbeth is crowned offstage and enters Act 3, already the King of Scotland. He kills Banquo right away and is immediately wrecked by guilt. He goes to the witches, receives more prophecy, orders more murders, provokes a rebellion, and then dies in battle defending his ill-gotten gains. And all of this happens in a very compressed period of theatrical time. The singular digression Shakespeare made is an unnecessary scene between the witches and the goddess Hecate, but it's unclear whether Shakespeare actually made this digression at all. Many believe this to be an interpolation, either by John Middleton or some later scribe, and in many productions it's the first scene to get edited. But even if this scene is Shakespeare's, the play still remains an extraordinary feat. There are no subplots, and every other scene drives the play forward to its unhappy end. The play is also notable for lacking one of Shakespeare's most common tropes, either the cynic, such as Falstaff or Falconbridge, or the clown, such as Lear's Fool. There doesn't seem to be any room for cynicism in a play where nobody even pretends to have ideals, and as for comedy, we have only the drunken porter who reminds us that alcohol hasn't really changed in 400 years. What three things does drink especially uh, marry, sir. Uh, nose painting. <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> and urine. <clears throat> Lechery, sir. It provokes and unprovokes. It provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance. <laughs> Therefore, much drink may be said to be an equivocator with lechery. It makes him and it mars him. It sets him on and it takes him off. The play also features an intriguing use of the supernatural. In Hamlet, Shakespeare goes out of his way to assert that the ghost is real. Many people see him. But in Macbeth, he does the opposite. It's all too clear that Banquo's ghost is a manifestation of a guilty mind, for when he appears, only Macbeth knows that he's there. Later, however, spirits appear to Macbeth thanks to the witches, and it's unclear whether they're real or just some sort of hallucination. If the ghosts here are hallucinations, and many productions suggest that they are, then Macbeth is not just wrecked by guilt, but also with a broken mind. It begins to color all we have seen before. Iago and Richard III are cold and calculating, but they are never crazy. Their acts all have a cool rationale. If Macbeth is suffering from a mental illness, then this might explain his erratic behavior from the very start of the play. It also puts an interesting light on one of his most famous speeches. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I had thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind? A false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain. A heat-oppressed brain. We know Macbeth is a soldier, and we, with our 21st century know-how, can wonder whether post-traumatic stress is not factoring into his behavior. It can be said that the witches are real in the first act because Banquo sees them too. But are the witches even there when Macbeth visits them in Act 4? Or is that entire scene something concocted by Macbeth, who dreams up the witches because he needs their prophecies as justification to continue his bloody deeds? Each time Macbeth performs another terrible act, the murder of Banquo, the destruction of the Macduffs, he becomes more unhinged because he is unable to reconcile his behavior with the torment in his soul. There is the man he is and the man he wants to be. Unfortunately for Scotland, the man he wants to be 
is a ruthless king. Now, no play is perfect, and if this piece has a flaw, it's that no character is quite equal to Macbeth. Just as Richard III dominates his play, so too does Macbeth dominate his. Even Lady Macbeth can't quite measure up, though you wouldn't know it from her popularity. Shakespeare has such few female villains that it's no wonder people gravitate towards Lady Macbeth, who is far more fascinating than her ancestor, the vile Tamora in Titus Andronicus. Lady Macbeth's refusal to conform with conventional stereotypes of female characters she is not a love object and is interested only in ambition has marked her for both scholars and actresses alike. The fact that there are almost no good women in this play, Lady Macduff is the only one and she is brutalized before her death, might suggest a subtle misogyny on Shakespeare's part, and it's possible to interpret the play as one in which women, Lady Macbeth and the witches, tempt Macbeth and bring about his ruin. This isn't my interpretation, mind you, but I can't deny that the witches are only ever witches, and attempts to make Lady Macbeth more sympathetic don't always work. She disappears for all of Act 4, only to return for her infamous sleepwalking scene. Transport out sea. One. Two. Why then tis time to do it? Oh, hell is murky. Oh, fie, my lord. Fie, a soldier and a feared. What need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to a compt? Yet who, who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? <laughs> Now you can see what Shakespeare was driving at here. Lady Macbeth, ruthless from the start, finds that her heart is just as full of guilt as her husband's. This is a marvelous character arc, and one rich in irony, but each time I watch the play, I'm not so sure that it's earned. In Act 3, Lady Macbeth is as wicked as ever, doggedly trying to cover for her husband who begins to act irrationally after seeing Banquo's ghost. Her last interaction with Macbeth involves them discussing Macduff, and while Macbeth shows signs the guilt is plaguing him, Lady Macbeth remains calm and collected. The next time she appears, she's gone mad, presumably from the guilt of what was done to Duncan, Banquo, and the Macduffs. If some scholar unearthed proof that we've been missing a scene for the last 400 years, I wouldn't be particularly surprised. Some crucial step is missing in the depiction of Lady Macbeth's transformation. Some productions I've seen connect her madness to the Macbeth's lost child. Having buried their own son, they are now parted to the murder of Macduff's. This is a nice connection and does help justify Lady Macbeth's madness, but this is a director's interpolation and not Shakespeare's. The text alone doesn't quite support her transformation. But perhaps this is what directors and actors are for. The role of Lady Macbeth is one of the best examples of why collaboration in theatre is so important. Shakespeare's text is little more than a sketch. Where Lady Macbeth really lives is between all those lines. Her eventual madness and suicide must be made to feel organic and not just some overhasty plot point. Macbeth was written during Shakespeare's nihilistic phase and it bears much of the same traits as King Lear and Othello. For what purpose does the carnage of the play occur? So Macbeth can be king. Well, there's little indication that Duncan was a bad king, and there's even less indication that Macbeth is a good one. His Scotland is in chaos almost from the start. Had Macbeth been fighting for a better world, there might be some justification for his deeds, but this is a story about brutal people who behave brutally to one another, just as one of them can get control over their small, tiny part of the world. It's a story that resonates everywhere, because it's the one that has never changed. People have been behaving badly to one another for the sake of power ever since the world was young. 
In Shakespeare's earlier work, his characters often had ideals. His romances had lovers who believed in true love, while the histories were one long epic debate over the divine right of kings. The characters of Othello, King Lear, and especially Macbeth don't have these sorts of ideals. The only thing they ever have is a desire to get whatever their petty hearts want. It is this that makes them the most human of Shakespeare's creations. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. There's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to filmed versions of the Scottish play. It was one of the first Shakespeare's films ever committed to film, with silent versions dating back to the beginning of the 20th century. The first talking version is the famed 1948 production with Orson Welles, followed by numerous others, not to mention the host of adaptations and film theatrical productions, so that the devoted Macbeth fan can compare and contrast the likes of Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Sean Connery, and Michael Fassbender. Each version has its pluses and minuses, and I won't bore you with an exhaustive list. King Lear and Hamlet have been filled almost as often, but they are complicated plays, and many versions hack the story to bits. Not so with Macbeth, which is such a compact play that most adaptations have to add rather than subtract. This doesn't always help the play. Beware, all ye clever directors who are too clever for your own good. So I'm going to recommend the productions which honor the text without adding too many theatrical flourishes. The Ian McKellen version, uh, first performed in 1978 and directed by Trevor Nunn, is a stripped-down, bare-bones approach. McKellen is paired with a certain Judy Dench, a young lady who went on to play a slew of less diabolical queens, and the production also features Ian McDermott in his pre-Star Wars Emperor Palpatine days. Now, more recently is the 2015 film with Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard. Directed by Justin Kurzel, it sets the action in medieval Scotland and doesn't try that hard to impress with any directorial interpolations. Fassbender and Cotillard uh, give pretty traditional representations of the characters, but this is hardly a fault, and though the film can be slow at times, it's your best bet if you want a version that remains loyal to the original script. After that, you can start winding your way backwards in time, all the way to the Orson Welles version, which made a slew of cuts and changes, and also used the witches to imply that Macbeth's fate was the result of a curse rather than of his own choice. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. That's it for Shakespeare and Bard. Next up, Shakespeare goes back to ancient Rome for the sequel to Julius Caesar. It's time for Anthony and Cleopatra. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. If you want more information about what I do with my time or to find more episodes of the show, please check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, while you're there, why not f- uh, figure out how to pick up a copy of my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them? It's available from St. Martin's Press. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 30 plays down. Eight to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>